and hearing today from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, which is page 564 in the Blue Bibles on the pews. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Church, I get the great pleasure of introducing today our guest preacher, Jeff Vanderstelt. As the executive director of Saturate and visionary leader of the Soma family of churches, Jeff gets to spend his days doing what he loves, mentoring leaders and equipping the church in the gospel and missional living. Additionally, Jeff is on the leadership team of Saturate the Sound, a local church collective focused on gospel saturation in the Puget Sound. Jeff has authored Saturate, Gospel Fluency, and Making Space. He and Jane, his wife, have three children, Haley, Caleb, and Maggie. So that's Jeff's formal bio, but I did want to shed some light on the conversations that we had this week in preparing and welcoming Jeff. Jeff might be a new face to some of you and then a beloved dear friend to many of you as well. Um, Josh Omendorf and Beck just shared um, how Jeff was so instrumental in, in showing them how to bring beauty out of ashes and shepherding the church coming out of Mars Hill in Bellevue into what is now Doxa today as the lead pastor. So I think some of you are well familiar with Jeff from that. Uh, it was shared that Jeff is such a humble man. He has a heart for the church, the capital C church, not building his own church, but building the kingdom here in Seattle. And so we rejoice in that and we rejoice in the local church. It was also said that you let Josh Obendorf beat you in golf and that you're a huge Kraken fan. So we keep it real. But all that to say, it is a joy to have you here today, Jeff, and to preach God's word. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is a joy to be here. I, I was sad to not see Josh and Beck just so I could tease them a little bit, but um, I understand they're, they're having a pretty good time together as a family right now. But it's great to be with you. Uh, I, I want to start with a question, and I'm not asking you to answer this out loud or even raise your hand, but I am asking you to consider that if I were to ask you to raise your hand, would you raise your hand to this question or not? And this question is, do you want to be known as weak or needy? Okay, like, don't raise your hand, but I mean, how many would go like, count me in? I love to be known as weak. I love to be known as needy. And sadly, we, we read the scripture before I asked that question because you're kind of going like, I know I'm supposed to say yes, but I don't want to say yes, right? Because sadly, I think you know, for those of us who maybe are, have been a part of the church, maybe some of you even are, who are new to it might even say you believe this, but you maybe believe that to be spiritually mature means to be strong, means to have it together, means to like not have needs, that people who have needs who are needy are actually immature, and those who don't have needs and aren't needy are spiritually mature. And I would say, according to the Apostle Paul, it's, that's wrong. Like spiritual maturity is awareness of neediness, awareness of weakness, and an ability to embrace it knowing that it's only when we acknowledge how weak and needy we are that we actually get to experience Jesus being the sufficiency that we need. In fact, for many of us, the idea of saying, I don't want to be needy and I don't want to be weak is another way of saying, I don't want anyone in my life. It's a way of pushing people away instead of inviting people in. And sadly, for many of us, that's what we've been doing. In fact, I would say one of the biggest challenges in the Seattle context is we almost think that being an individual who needs nobody is the greatest uh, way to live. And yet we live in a very lonely place as a result. And people are unwilling or afraid to acknowledge their needs. And there's good reason for that. We could probably spend quite a bit of time like why, why don't we want to be needy? Why don't we want to be known as weak? Probably because when we were it didn't go well. 
right? We probably were vulnerable at one point and taken advantage of, or we, we found ourselves acknowledging our weakness, but we didn't get our needs met, or people looked down upon us, or we were despised for it. And so there are a lot of reasons why we bought into this philosophy, but it's, it's a, let me just be clear, it's the philosophy of the world. It is not the philosophy, philosophy of Jesus. It's not the way of Christ. In fact, he was really clear, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. So when you said, all you big kids, I kind of laughed because I knew I was going to say that. No, they didn't, but that's because they don't want to be big kids, right? <laughs> just kidding. But that, that's, that was Jesus' message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. His whole message was, I didn't come for those who are healthy, I came for those who are sick. I didn't come for the righteous, Jesus said, but I came for the unrighteous. In other words, if you don't think you need Jesus, you won't go to Jesus. But if you realize you need Jesus, you'll embrace all that he can do and be for you. And so that is the heart of the gospel, is that we start off weak and needy, not put together and without need. And Apostle Paul obviously thought differently about that. <laughs> it was pretty clear. I want to read it again for you. Just maybe you, now that I asked the question, I want you to hear the scripture one more time. And I'm just going to read a few of the verses. He says, after he's saying, God, would you please get rid of this thorn in my flesh? And he asked three times, and God says, no, I'm not going to. And we don't know what it is. I think that's good. In some ways, I think the, the scriptures are written so that we could all go like, we all probably have something like that, that we wish would go away or wish wasn't a weakness in our life. But this is what God says to him. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not bad to be strong, it's just how do we get to strength? And according to the Apostle Paul, the way that you get to strength is through weakness. The way that you get real strength is you need God's power. And then you get the ultimate strength when you go to him to get what he can only give. So here's, here's the, the idea. Weakness in you and me opens the door for our healing uh, and help and strength. It's, it's kind of what says, I need and I receive. Think of it that way. Another way to think about this is that God has given you your feelings. We're going to talk about feelings today, so if you don't like feelings, get ready. In fact, the title of my message is Feeling Your Way to Jesus. So God has given you your feelings to make you aware of your needs so that you will move toward God and others. He's given you your feelings to make you aware of your needs to help you move towards God. In other words, a, a, a way to think about this is that your functional existence is that you are a feeling being, not a thinking being. Okay, there's a really good book by James K.A. Smith. Some of you may have read it. It's entitled, You Are What You Love. He confronts Descartes' philosophy that many of us have bought into, I think, therefore I am. And from that point on, enlightenment and rationalism took over, and we began to believe that we were primarily uh, brains on a stick or thinking things. But the reality is, is for a lot longer than the last few hundred years, most philosophers and early church leaders would say, you're not primarily thinking things. You are first and foremost feeling things. That you are, you are affection-based people. That what you love, what you feel, has got a lot more power over you than just what you think. And in some ways, what you think helps you understand and give articulation to what you feel or what you want. But when we get that backwards, we find ourselves in trouble. We'll talk about that because we're going to look at a narrative uh, back in Genesis where we see that very thing happening. So we're going to go over to Genesis 2 because some of you are going like, I don't know if I agree with you or believe you, but that's okay. Stay with me. Don't write me off yet. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Many of you know this is the account. There's really two accounts of creation uh, in Genesis. There's the macro account in Genesis 1. It's kind of like the big picture of how it all comes together. Then there's the more micro account in Genesis 2 of how God makes man and woman. Okay, So the Lord God says in verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now pause here. This is not God talking to Adam. This is the Godhead talking. 
If you remember back in Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image. So there's communal, communal nature in the Godhead. We now know that as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the, God is having a conversation. And in the conversation is, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, I want to make sure I make a note here. Adam doesn't know he's alone. How could he? He knows nothing other than he's been created as a man and he's in this world. He can't look around and go like, well, they've got a friend or a mate. He doesn't have anything to measure it against. So the only thing he knows is it's just Adam. But he doesn't understand loneliness yet. right? Loneliness is I was made for someone else. And until I find a relationship, I will remain lonely. So God is going like, he's alone, it's not good, Let's make sure he knows that. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. So keep reading. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Which, by the way, doesn't this seem like a, like, what, this feels like a rabbit trail all of a sudden. Like, it's not good that man's alone. Oh, by the way, there's all these beasts and these birds, and God decides to bring them to him to name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field, pause. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So you see what God's doing. God's going, he doesn't know he's lonely, but if we bring all these animals, which we now know from Noah's account, they probably came in pairs, male and female, to Adam. And Adam's going like, wait a minute, male, female, bird, male, female, cow, male, female, donkey, male, female, tiger. I mean, he's doing the whole thing. And at one point, it's like, wait a minute, what about me? Right? He, he comes to the conclusion that something is missing. In fact, in God's narrative of creation, he creates one day, it's good. Two day, good. Three day, good. Four day, good. Five day, good. Six day, good, but not good. Man is alone. That's how the narrative goes when you read in Genesis 2 and 3. And so what's going on is God wants Adam to feel what? You can speak back to me. He wants him to feel lonely. He wants him to feel lonely. Now some are going like, that's not a good thing. Lonely is not a good thing. No, but if you don't feel lonely, you won't want relationship. If you fundamentally go like, this is just how it is. We're supposed to be all by ourselves. We're supposed to be all alone. And you just let that be the norm for your life. You'll never need anybody. And you won't be like God because you were made in the image of God who existed eternally in, in community. And if you're made in the very image of God who existed eternally in community, then you were made for community. You were made to be with people, to be known, to be seen, to be loved, to be cared for, to be included, to be needy for others. That's how you were made. So I want to pause here and just invite you to think about this. Sometimes God will let us go through things in our life like he did with Adam to make us aware of how needy we are. And a lot of us are like, I just want to get out of it. I would just like to, like, can you just deliver me from this difficulty? Can you just remove the sense of weakness and neediness? Is there some way out of this? And God's going, no, the way out of this is to me and to people. Like, I'm making you aware of your neediness so you will press into relationship. And a lot of us, we do the opposite when we feel needy or weak. We run away from people. We try to do it all on our own. And God's going, no, no, no. It's not good that you are alone. So he continues. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. By the way, a really, really important principle there. God wants us to become aware that we can't actually meet our needs without him. And he'll even put us to sleep in some cases. Like if you want to see helpless, that's as helpless as it gets. He puts him to sleep. It's like, how many of you guys have ever gone to get surgery and they, they put, you know, the, the IV in you, and you're like, they're like, count to 10 backwards. You're like, 10, <laughs> you're gone. And they're like, man, I don't like, by the way, my wife likes getting that experience. I hate that experience because, like, I'm completely out of control, and I know I'm going to be, and I have no idea what's going to happen to me once I'm asleep. Right? How many of you like that? Don't raise your hand if you do. Like, my wife does. <laughs> like, I feel I'm absolutely out of control. 
And that's what's going on here is God's putting him to sleep to go, at the end of the day, Adam, you can't solve this problem. I'm going to put you to sleep and I will take care of you. And while he's asleep, one of his ribs, it takes out one of his ribs, closed up its place with, the flat, with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last. Do you hear that? That's longing fulfilled. At last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I want to pause here because I don't want you to miss this. God puts him to sleep, does surgery on him. So when the woman finds the man, how does she find the man? He's out. Like he's recovering. And when he kind of wakes up, there she is. And I think there's something beautiful about this because God wants to make sure he knows how needy he is and she also gets to see that reality. And I think this is something, men in the room, you need to realize. Like you think you don't need others. Because I think this is a very, oftentimes, a very guys say, like, I don't need anybody. I can do this myself. And I think women have the same challenge. But there, there is a sense that it feels to me like the guys I hang with love to be by themselves too much. <laughs> so it's almost like a wake-up call. Men, you can't do this alone. The story continues. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. By the way, this is a really encouraging piece for those of you who don't like your family of origin. Right? What he's saying there is you get to leave it. I don't mean like despise it, but like you get to start again. Like this is a redemption narrative because this gets said over and over again for every single marriage from that point on that really this is a new start. And it's ultimately pointing to the ultimate marriage of the Lamb where Jesus and his church will experience this wedding and we all get the ultimate new start. And that our past does not define our present or future. That we all get a new beginning. And that is at the heart of Christianity. And it's not just future, but his mercies are new every morning, which means every day when you wake up and you hate the last day, you get to have a new start today. And he's gracious to you, and he's merciful to you, and he doesn't hold your past over your head. It's such good news. We get to start anew. And God can redeem our stories. As long as you don't like your story, I just want you to let you know God's writing a new one for you. And then it ends this way. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And this, we'll just call this healthy shame, okay? Or call it humility, right? It's like they both are vulnerable. They're both transparent. They both have nothing to hide. They're both very, very aware of their neediness. Like I just imagine that first man and that first woman, they're like, okay, well, God said be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You look different than me and I look different than you, Right? And I'm trying to be an, an, like appropriate, but like, just imagine the image. Like, like, I'm not like you, and you're not like me, and we have to like, make a baby now. Be fruitful and multiply. They're super needy for each other. Don't miss that. And they're super in need of each other. Don't miss that. And they're absolutely naked and completely vulnerable with each other, and they're not ashamed of it. And I want you to miss that, because... The, what, the question I started with is, do you enjoy being weak or needy? They were okay with it. In Genesis chapter 2, the way things were before sin, before rebellion, before brokenness, was that they were okay being absolutely needy, transparent, and vulnerable with one another. And that, that is, by the way, what God wants for his people, is to be in a place not literally naked. Not, you know, that's a figurative thing now, right? Please, I'm thankful you all dressed to come to the gathering this morning. Uh, but rather, I get to show up, and I get to be me, and I get to show that I'm needy, and it's okay, and it won't be despised. I'm not ashamed of it. And this is where it all began. In a lot of ways, God wants us to return back to Eden. He wants us to find ourselves back at home in the place of being needy for him and being needy for others and acknowledging that we can't do this by ourselves. That's what he wants for you. And this is kind of how it works. I'm going to just give you a progression of how this works. And I, I, this is some language I'm borrowing from a ministry I'm a part of called Tin Man Ministries. Uh, if you know the story of Wizard, Wizard of Oz, Tin Man didn't know he had a heart. And so the whole story is he had it all along. <laughs> he just had to, he had to discover it again. He had to find his way back to his heart. And, and this is the pro progression that I would hope even this morning you might ex experience a little bit of. 
Here's how it goes. If I feel, then I need. Go back to Adam. If he feels lonely, then he knows he needs a friend. And in this case, it was his wife. If I need, then I desire. Which means now this acknowledgement of need. Jesus, by the way, says, remember in his beatitude sermon, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So if I feel sad, I will know I have the need to mourn, which means I'll desire someone to comfort me. Right? So if I feel, then I'll need. If I need, I'll desire. If I'll desire, then I'll long. That means I'll reach outside of myself to find my needs met in someone else. Ultimately, hopefully, in God. I'll long for. And this is, by the way, what Jesus means when he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. What is he saying? Those who realize that they don't have it in and of themselves to be righteous, they're going to have to reach out with hunger towards somebody who does, which is Jesus. That's at the heart of that message. So if I desire, I'll long, and then if I long, I'll hope. Have you ever been with somebody, and maybe this is you today, who just seems hopeless, who just seems to have lost any sense that when they reach out, they're going to get something back? And then if I hope, I will look to God and I'll look to others. That's the progression. Let me say it another way. Feelings will make you aware of what you need. I know some of you are still squirming because you've been told feelings are bad. Just stay with me, okay? And being needy opens the door to relationship. He, let me say another, another form of this. When you were born, the part of your brain that feels, which is how you made your needs known as a baby, was 95% developed. When you were born, which is why when a baby is born, what, what are we listening for? They're crying. Because when they cry, they're just making their needs known verbally. And good parents attune to their children's cry. That's a sad cry. That's a hungry cry. That's a scared cry. That's a lonely cry. That's a hurt cry. Right? Parents in the room, you know this, or people who've been with young children. That, by the way, if they don't cry, that's a really bad thing. I was actually speaking at a pastor's conference a while ago, and, and I was talking about these, this idea of feeling our feelings so that we'll know our needs, and then we'll move to God and other people to have them appropriately met. And a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, I don't feel anything. And I said, when, when can you last remember feeling? And he said, never. And I said, well, when you were a baby, did you cry? And he said, no, when I was born, my mom said I never cried. They were concerned. I said, what was happening to your mom while you were in the womb? He said, she was being beat by my dad. I said, so you learned in, in the womb that it was not safe to feel and to be needy. So you shut it down before you were ever born. That's how your brain works, by the way. It's, it's that amazing. Your brain is that effective that even before you're born, it's able to feel and make its needs known. And then when, when you're born, you cry. And then as you get a little older, you, know, you get language for that. And sadly, we've called that the, the terrible twos. But I, I would recommend you call it the expressive twos. That you don't shame kids for a voice. But rather, you invite them to keep having a voice and learning how to speak out their needs even if they don't do them perfectly because we have a God in heaven who is perfectly fine with us yelling at him. Read the Psalms. Like, those are written so you can have permission to tell God what you're going through, even if what you're feeling doesn't seem to line up with reality at times. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. By the time you get to the end of the Psalm, it says you never left me. Right? Like, the whole Psalms are written to help us be like little children again, to stop pretending like we don't need God and to tell him the truth about what we're going through because he can handle it. In fact, he wants it. He wants you and I to be that real and that honest and that needy for him. That's the only way we get relationship with God. You don't get it by presenting your best. You get it by coming to him with your worst, with your real needs. He doesn't need your best. He already is. By the way, I, 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 this is a really big deal for me. I hope you're sensing that. Like, this isn't just a message. This is like coming out of my heart. And the reason why is because I know we're born into a broken world. I know we have, most of us have not experienced Genesis 2. Most of us have experienced the next part of the story, Genesis 3. My story is that I was brought up, and this is not against my parents. It's just a culture we lived in. I've talked to them about this. But I heard big boys don't cry. Hurt boys need to toughen up. Angry boys need to shut up. Bored and lonely boys, if you're bored, you got to go find something to do. Fear is a sign of weakness. And the church that I grew up in used public shame and fear to control behavior. 
That's my upbringing. I love my parents and they love me and I know that. But they were told feelings could not be trusted. They were told that, that being weak is anti-spiritual. They were told that being needy is not the way forward. And I know why. I know their stories. I know what shaped them. And we've talked about this. And it, it deeply grieves me that they had what they had growing up. And it deeply grieves me that I grew up in a church that would bring people on the stage and publicly shame them so that everybody else would be afraid of doing what they did. Like, that's not, that's not of Jesus. So broken. And then many of you, some of you who know me know my story that, that three year, a little bit over three years ago, my best friend and a guy that was like my Timothy in the faith, if you're new to the church, that's like a guy I mentored and poured my life into, uh, he took his life. He was the pastor of the church that we planted in Tacoma that I handed over to him after about 10 years. And I'll tell you, I, everything went dark for me in that moment. And for months, I questioned everything about my faith. And I didn't have a lot of the access to the feelings that I needed to work through to be able to actually experience the healing and deal with the doubts. And so I actually went through 14 months of weekly meetings with a guy from Tin Man Ministries who just sat on the other side of me and said, let's help you feel your feelings, tell the truth about them, and learn how to be needy again. And it tra transformed my life. My wife's here. She would tell you I'm not perfect. I'm still working on a ton of stuff that's broken in me, but I'm a different husband, and I'm a different father, and I'm a different leader, even though I'm really broken. Here's what had happened. I didn't know that I had a hard heart. Like, we use that language in spiritual circles, like hard-heartedness, and most of us think, like, that means you're rebellious or that you don't want God. And I'm, I'm learning to realize my hard heart was I didn't know how to be soft I didn't know how to be needy. I didn't know how to be weak. I hardened my heart against those ideas because it wasn't safe in my, my household or my church to be that needy. And it comes from Genesis 3. Keep reading. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Jesus, or God didn't say that, he, she added there, lest you die. By the way, i pause here. The word death in Hebrew is separation. So when you, whenever you read that word in the Bible, don't just think my soul separating from the body. It is that. But it's any kind of separation, right? So me being separated from God is death. Me being separated from myself. So me not even being able to, to tune to my own heart was a form of death. Me being separated from relationship, that's death. Me being separated from community, that's death. Me being separated from caring for the creation and the world around us, that's death. And we all see the fruit of that death, right? In all those fears, that spheres that I just described, that's what the Bible means when it says you will die. Okay? It's not just you're going to stop breathing, it's you're going to be separated in all the places that where you need to be connected. So the serpent says to the woman, you won't, you won't surely die. You're not going to experience separation. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And what is he promising her? He's saying, you don't have to be so needy for God anymore. You don't have to be dependent. You don't have to look to God for what you need. You could do this without God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. By the way, later Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, says, this is the wisdom of the world. It's all coming right back to this moment, where you can actually figure everything out without God. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is, God is wisdom, and therefore what true wisdom, I access the mind of God, who is wisdom for me. So she sees that she could get it without him. We could be wise without God. So she takes the fruit, eats it, gives it to her husband who's with her. He eats it. The eyes of both of them are open. They knew they were naked. Well, they were naked before. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happens? Now they're ashamed of their vulnerability, of their, of their neediness. And so instead of embracing it and embracing God and one another, they're now going to hide from God and hide from one another. That's the outcome, okay? 
And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? Now, real, real question, is God confused about where they're at? Are they just like masters at hide and seek? And God's going, I can't find you. I've been looking everywhere. Now, this is not a GPS question, just to be clear. This is in God inviting Adam to locate himself. This is God saying, Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know what's going on in you? And if, if we, and I think this is true of many of you, if you believe that the very word of God, what we call the Bible, is inspired by God, as we're told later in the, in the New Testament, and therefore everything that was at least in the original manuscripts written down by humans, but inspired by the Spirit, led along by the Spirit, in fact, carried along by the Spirit to write down exactly what God wanted to be written, then the very next phrase that we need to read here is super, super important for how we answer the question, where are you? Okay? Where are you? The answer Adam gives, I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was, say it with me, afraid. That's a feeling. God, when he says, where are you, he's inviting you to say, a feeling. I was afraid, sad, lonely, hurt. Go look at the Beatitudes again. That's all it is. It's Jesus saying, blessed are those who feel. For they will get what they need. That's what the Psalms are saying. We're going to see even that's what Jesus himself does in a minute here. I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. Now, I'm going to call that the impairment of an emotion. Okay, when we don't like the emotion that we're experiencing, we try everything we can to run away from it. Right? We stuff it, we deny it, we put it in the dark. Like, I'm, that's not real, I'm not going to pay attention to that. That's what Adam is doing, by the way. Because if he really felt fear, like if he realized, realized, okay, we just did what God said would lead to death, and there's this crafty serpent who's dead set on destroying us, what do you think Adam's going to do if he really felt fear? I mean, honestly said, I am really afraid. Where would he have run? To God. This is him saying, I don't like feeling fear. I want to be in control. I'm going to do everything I can to run away from my neediness. So I'm going to run away from God. I'm going to hide and pretend like I'm not that weak. By the way, this is what humans have been doing since the beginning. It's like, I don't want to feel because if I feel, I'll be needy. And if I'm needy, then I'll have to reach out to God and people. And so I'm going to keep telling myself, those feelings aren't real. I can't trust them. Stuff them, deny them, run away from them. But God made you this way. I want you to hear this. This is not psychobabble. This is in the very second chapter of Genesis. <laughs> and it's all through the Psalms. You'll read the Psalms differently now. You'll be like, oh my goodness, I can't get away from it. That's why I don't read them. Because I don't like it. Because some of you have been told, like me, you can't trust your feelings. But here's what I want to say. Your feelings are really like a dashboard on your car. They're indicators of what's going on in the engine. That's what's going on. Sometimes they don't tell the truth about God. Sometimes they don't tell the truth about you. Sometimes they don't tell the truth about the world. But they do help you locate what's going on inside of you. It's God's gift to you. Remember I said when you're born, the part of your brain that feels is 95% developed? Do you know what your rational mind, men in the room, is not fully developed until you're 28? So any of you who have boys, give them a break. Like you're like, hey, that's irrational. Of course it is. They can't be rational. Like it's why I would say a lot of men go to war when they're young. Because it's like, that's crazy to run into a battle. Older men stay back far enough from the front lines, right? I, I say, say that, like, that's sad, but it is true, okay? Women, your brain's rational part of your brain isn't fully developed until you're about 23 to 25. So, by the way, give guys a break, too, because they're behind you. And I don't know why God did that. Maybe he just wanted the Adam and Eve experience over and over again to go, like, hey, dudes, you're needy. Like, especially if you get married young. Like, I was dumb, Ignorant. I had no idea how I was not a good thinker. I should have trusted my wife a lot better when I was young. Because she had a lot more discernment than me. And I look back and I made a lot of bad decisions because I didn't listen to her well. Thank God for you and your grace. Here's how it works, by the way. I'm going to give you what we're going to call the transformational process. This is in the Psalms. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give therapeutic language and biblical language, okay? So it's going to come on the screen or over there. Uh, first of all, admission. That's confession. Adam, where are you? I was afraid. That's just him confessing out loud. By the way, what we want to create in the church is a confessional community. Not just where we confess our sin, but we confess what we're believing, we confess what we're feeling, we confess what we're going through. That's the Psalms. It's all the Psalms are doing is creating freedom for you to learn how to confess out loud what's going on inside of you. So we create a confessional people. And then when I say it out loud, what do, we, what do you think Adam happened when he said, I was afraid? It's like he finally said out loud what he didn't want to embrace. And he, when he said that, he was able to accept reality because how does, how does God create? You guys know the story. He speaks. So as soon as he says it, it is. If you and I are made in the image of God, when you say it, you're saying it is. When I say I'm sad, it's finally me going, I accept the truth of what is. And ideally, we do that with a group of people who go like, it's okay to be needy. That's what community is. It's a safe place for you to show up and tell the truth about what's happening inside of you. In fact, if you aren't in a community like that, I'm just going to urge you, make sure you don't stay alone much longer. You need a place where you can confess out loud in a community that says it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be hurt or lonely. It's okay to experience guilt. You're going to need help with that, but we have a place where it's safe. And then we experience attunement, which is moms and dads, you remember, and, and, and those of you who, who've been with young kids or you remember when you were a child, you know, like when you got a booboo in your arm and they're, they're like, oh, buddy, that hurts so much. Now, it probably doesn't hurt so much. Maybe it does. But it hurts him so much or her so much. And what do you do when you get a boo-boo? What does a kid want? A kiss and a Band-Aid, right? They want attention. And they, that Band-Aid, you might go like, by the way, if you are a parent, invest in Band-Aids. It's worth it. It's, it's way cheaper than counseling. Okay? Just attend to them. Like all you're, all you're doing is attuning. You're saying, that hurts. I see your hurt. By the way, you know, at the end of a gathering, sometimes we do a benediction, and one of the things we say in it is, may he cause his face to shine upon you. That's attunement. That's God just going like, I see you, and I reflect back to you that I see you, and I see your sadness, and I, I see your loneliness, and I see your hurt. Do you know that we have a God? One of his names is the God who sees. He sees you. He attunes with you, and he feels with you what you're feeling. And that's where we get attachment. By the way, that with attunement, it's really communion. That's, where, that's what real communion feels like. It's like, oh my goodness, you see me and I see you and we are experiencing attachment, which in the Bible is called the word hesed. It's the, the, the never-ending, non-stopping, forever love of God. That no matter what you do, he will always love you. It's Jesus saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't leave you like an orphan. I will be with you. That's attachment. And when Jesus prays for his people in John 17, who will believe, he says, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us so that the world would know that you sent me. John 15, he says, if you want to bear fruit, you must abide in me and me in you. Then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's attachment. And for many of us, we've seen Christianity or following God or seeking after God as more like a head thing. I learn facts and ideas and then I say out loud what I believe, but we have no attachment. We have no deep relational attachment with the creator of the universe, and you cannot have spiritual life apart from attachment. And then we get alignment, which is now God can say, let me tell you the truth about yourself. Let me tell you the truth about this world. Let me tell you the truth about me, because we all do need to have things corrected in our life. But sadly, if you could draw a line on this, I would say most of us have experienced going from admission or confession directly to alignment and correction. People say out loud what they're going through, and you're like, yo, that's wrong. You need to change. It's like, you just did violence to their soul when you do that, because they're made for relationship, not just for correction. Correction comes after you do the rest. By the way, if you, if you're, if you are a parent in the room, I hope that you'll learn to pro go through this process with your kids. Like celebrate them showing up and telling the truth. And by the way, if you're, even if you aren't a parent, you have friends. Your friends need this from you. Your community needs this kind of experience together. And Jesus was the best example of this. In fact, I'll say this. I believe Jesus was the neediest human that ever lived. So you're going like, what? Well, this is what he said. John, John chapter 5, verse 19. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. That's attachment and attunement right there. He sees me, I see him. I only do what I see him doing. We do this together. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. By the way, if you're new to Christianity, uh, I want you to hear this. Whatever Jesus did is exactly what the Father was doing. So when you go and go, what is God like? Well, whatever Jesus did is what God was doing. And if you want to know what God's like, look at what Jesus did. And if you have a bad view of what God's like because of maybe an experience you've had or the way the media or others are portraying what it looks like to follow God, just get back to looking at Jesus because he's amazing. And he did it right. And he was perfectly aligned and attuned to the Father. So everything he did was what the Father was doing. But then he goes on in verse 30 and says, I can do nothing on my own. What is he saying? I'm really needy. I was not made to do this by myself. I need to do this with the Father. See, I want you to hear this. Jesus felt every feeling you and I feel, and he perfectly went to God and others as we were meant to in each one. He felt sad. Remember his sadness? His friend Lazarus dies. He's at the tomb. We know the story. He's going to raise him from the dead. Shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. I'm talking like snot coming out. Wept over his friend. Why? Because that's death. And he knows that death is about separation. And separation goes all the way back to chapter 3 of Genesis. And he knows what's been happening to humanity ever since. And he knows it's not just about Lazarus' death. It's about everybody's death. It's about all the suffering and all the brokenness. In that moment, Jesus is feeling it perfectly and holistically. And he weeps. And when he looks over Jerusalem, and he, he says, you're like sheep without a shepherd. It says he wept over them. Jesus wept. That's why he can say, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. You know that the Spirit is there comforting Jesus in his sadness. Which is why Paul later can say, we comfort others with the comfort we received. We can't be people who give comfort to others if we can't learn to be sad of what we've lost and receive comfort in it. If you refuse to feel sad, by the way, you're just going to give in to self-pity. That's the impairment of your sadness. It's like, everyone's got to feel sad for me because I won't feel my own sadness. And those people become very demanding people. But truly sad people who really grieve experience not only the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but they learn how to accept the world as it is and have courage to face more. That's how it works. Jesus was very angry. The angriest one who's ever lived was Jesus Christ. Right? Anger is about having so much passion about things being wrong that you're willing to die for it. That's Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's so angry, he turns the table, temples, temples in the table over because they're keeping people from getting to God. By the way, some of us have heard anger as rage. Don't hear that. Anger is like four. It's fighting for people. It's having a voice to stand up for the oppressed and stand against injustice. For many of us, we've lost our voice. I told you it was not okay for me to be angry as a child, so I learned how to have my voice somewhere else. But I couldn't have it in my household. Right? That was just me trying to cry out with passion. Some of you need to get a voice back because you've been so depressed and you thought it wasn't okay to have passion anymore. Jesus felt fear. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. It says he sweat like drops of blood, agonizing over the fear of the cross. If you aren't afraid of the cross, you're a crazy person. Right? By the way, if you, if you say it's good to be fearless, you're probably someone who's trying to be in control of things you can't control. And I would bet people around you are feeling very fearful of you. That's usually where that goes. When you don't have any fear, you become a reckless person. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Fear says, this is a dangerous world out there. I need God's help and I need God's wisdom to navigate what could destroy me if I don't submit to him and ask for his help. Some of you need to know that Jesus felt hurt. And the Bible's really clear, by his wounds, you and I are healed. His friends left him, one of them betrayed him, and the Jewish mob and the Roman soldiers crucified him. He knows what it's like to really hurt. And Jesus also felt very lonely. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He knows what it's like to be human. Some of us have overemphasized the deity of Christ. He is God. He's also man. 
We need to maybe re-embrace the humanity of Christ and get back to what Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. And that word means feel what we feel with us while we feel it. I'm going to say that again. That was a lot. Sympathize means to feel what we feel with us while we feel it. We have a high priest who's able to feel what we feel with us while we feel it. If you're sad today, Jesus is sad with you. And he wants you to experience comfort. If you're lonely, Jesus felt lonely and feels with you your loneliness. And he wants you to know there's a friend that will stick closer than a brother in Jesus. If you're feeling hurt, Jesus is one who's wounded, but by his wounds, you and I can also be healed. And he wants to feel your hurt with you so you can experience his healing. Jesus is one who felt anger and spoke out against what was wrong in this world. And some of you, that's where you're at right now, and he's going, I'm with you in that. We can do this. I can help you have a voice. So here's the question I want to ask, because the passage goes on. He's able to sympathize with our weakness, and he's one who in every respect has been tempted. The word really there could also be translated tested, as we are yet without sin. So let us turn then with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to say it with me, help in our time of need. So where are you today? That's the question. Where are you today? If God were to come to you like he did to Adam this morning in Genesis 3 and say, Adam, where are you? Jeff, where are you? And I'm not sure your name, so I'll just let you put your name in there. Where are you? What would be the answer? Sad, lonely, hurt, afraid. I feel I'm feeling shame, guilt, some anger, hurt, gladness, joy. What is it? I just want you to close your eyes and I want to invite you to have a time of silence where God gets to ask you that question. And if you're able to say, I feel, and you don't have to say it out loud, but inside, I feel sad, then you've made yourself ready for him to come and comfort you. Whatever you're able to acknowledge, he's ready to come and be with you in. So just answer the question, where are you? And if you're open to it, invite him to come be with you in that. Father, we come to you this morning like little children because Jesus invited us to be that again. And there's some of us who, like me, maybe, I actually need to go back and keep attending to that boy who didn't get some of the things he needed, and I'm glad I'm safe to do that with you. I pray that you would make our souls assured of the safety of your presence, that we can hide in the refuge in the shadow of your wings, that you are a shelter and a safe place, that you welcome those who know they're needy, that we, we hear the words of Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, I pray that all of us would be renewed in our hearts to show up with you again. Would you meet us in our place of need this morning with your very presence and your provision and teach us how to then go to safe people as well to get help in community. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Well, there's tables on both sides. I think most of you who are part of the, this gathering regularly know uh, this next part, but I want to explain it in just in light of the text, in light of the ideas that I shared. When we go to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup, we're really saying Jesus, the, the Son of God, took on a, a human body and went through everything we go through without sin so that we can go to him and have our absolute needs met over and over and over again. That's what we're doing every time we do this. So we take the bread. I know it's a small piece of bread, but imagine that very first loaf that Jesus broke with his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. And what it was like for them to watch him go through what he went through and then to be able to be with him in the resurrection body and him say, one day we're gonna have this meal together. And every time you do it, you're just remembering me until I return. That's what this is about. So we take the bread as a, a confession that we needed one to go through it for us. And then we take the cup and we drink the juice or the wine. We're remembering that he shed his blood for all the ways in which we went somewhere else with our needs. Where we ran away like Adam. Where we hid and pretended we weren't needy. There's grace on all of us because of Jesus' blood shed for you and I. And what he says from the cross to you and I is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's his kindness to you today. So I want to pray that we'll receive that, and I'll just, we'll create space for you to come and receive that with a heart of thanksgiving, but also a heart acknowledging your need for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the table, would you fill our hearts with joy and celebration that we have one who gets us and one who will be with us and one who will help us. And we pray you would as we take this in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.